This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. This is part two of our interview with Emmy and nominated and eight times ASCAP award winning composer Craig Safan, conducted via Zoom in August 2021 at his home in Santa Monica, California. In part one, we talked about how his musical career started and how Craig ended up scoring for film and television. In part two, we talked more about his film and television work. He scores for silent films such as The Phantom of the Opera and the pleasure that Craig has writing music for himself away from film and television including the three concept albums he has released, LAX being the most recent. And as with part one, throughout the show we'll be hearing more of the wonderful music of the legendary Craig Safan, including this. Now, one of my other favourite scores of yours is from a miniseries you did in 1991, entitled The Son of a Morning Star. Oh, yeah. Beautiful strings. There's a lovely solo trumpet on there, too, which I, 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 I love. Tell us about your memories working on that project. Well, that was another. You're picking all the good ones that were a joy to work on, and that was one of them. That was a, such a beautiful score and a beautiful film. That was a challenge, which I liked, in terms that they didn't really have the money to do a 90 piece orchestra. I mean, it was, it was television and they, but they had some money 
And what I decided was that I would do the score with mostly a string orchestra. I put all my money into strings, throw in a couple of brass and a percussionist, and that's it. And again, it was about Custer and Little Bighorn, which is the uh, encroachment of the American army on the Native Americans. So I thought, well, I'm not going to use that same music for the Native Americans. It was one of the first movies that used all actual Native Americans playing themselves, not like the old TV series from the 60s, you know, where you'd, you'd see every actor in the world in, in makeup. These were all actual Native Americans, and they took great pains that the costumes were authentic, that the face paint was authentic, everything. And I thought, well, how am I going to do that? I don't want that to be the same music. I want it to be starkly different. And what I thought was that, okay, I'm going to use a solo Native American flute. And the Native American flutes were not hollowed out. They were literally cut in half, then hollowed, then tied back together with leather. So they have a lot of air. They sound, they're amazing sounding. And I was able to find a man who could play it, who was Native American, and also could improvise. Again, I went to the UCLA Ethnomusicology Library and listened to lots and lots of Native American music and sort of made notes of the main, most famous melodies. And then what I would do is I'd say to him, I'd bring him in the studio, and I'd say, okay, do you know this tune? And I played, he said, oh yeah, yeah, I know that tune. Well, I want you to watch the screen and this scene of uh, the Native American village or some painting or Geronimo or little, you know, all that stuff. And I want you to just use that theme as a starting point. And he would play it and we do it three or four times. Then when he was done, I'd go in and I'd cut it so it made sense. Then I put, synthesizer pads, which are just held chords. And we're not hitting any cuts. It's just floating over it. And then I said, okay, now I'm going to use Native American percussion and write it so the percussion, which is paying no attention to the flute, they're not playing together, is going to and hit the appropriate moments. So it's almost like these two separate worlds that are floating. And that became all the Native American music. So to me, one of the most important things on writing for film music, because I don't have one style. I think certain composers, you know, like John Williams, he writes in a certain style. Occasionally he moves away from it a little, but 90% of the time you, he writes in a certain way. I tend to be more eclectic than that. I've done rock and roll scores. I've done big symphonic scores. I've done a lot of electronic scores. And the first thing that I like to do is to look at a picture and sort of come up with the palette. Again, I was a fine arts major in college. So I think of things in color or in art and I go, okay, this is going to be done with Native American flute, percussion, and synths. And that's it. That's all I get. And I have to make that work. And I think those limitations lead to a lot of creativity or like the rest of the the American, uh, well, the United States part of that score, I'm going to use a lot of strings because I want 
the emotion. I don't want to just play battle and death and all. I want the emotion because it's so emotional, this story. And I'll put a few trumpets in and a, you know, some brass in. So that was my palette. That's what I had to work with. I didn't have a big percussion section. I didn't have woodwinds. I didn't have synths. And I think figure each movie, I figure out what that palette is. And that's my starting point.
There's another score that I love of yours, which uh, was released at the same time as the Remo Williams pilot on Entrada Records. It's a film I remember because it featured a final performance by Stacey Keach, The Mission of the Shark, the saga of the USS Indianapolis. And listening to it again today, I did notice that in contrast to the Son of the Morning Star, there's, it's a very brassy score. I think very, very any strings at all in it, but it still works really well. Right. So that, now that was a, a television film, which was, there were many of those done back then. Again, they don't have a big budget for their music. You're not going to get a big orchestra. And yet, I didn't want to rely on synthesizers. They didn't really seem right for the project. And what I thought is, well, I'm going to put all my money into a lot of brass. I can't quite remember. I think there were some strings, but it was more like, okay, I'm going to get four cellos and one bass and no violas and no violins because I don't want one violin that's going to sound stupid or two violins, but I can get a good with four or five cellos. It's going to sound like something, right? And you, you only need one bass. And so I did have that and I may have had a few woodwinds since, but I thought mainly this is going to be brass and percussion. This is a story that takes place during world war two. It's about the Navy and people struggling to survive after their ship was torpedoed. And it's a true story. And again, Stacy Keach is wonderful. I think Richard Thomas is also in that. And it's funny because, again, on those kind of projects, you don't spend that much time. It's maybe two or three weeks. They're not long production schedules. But it's lived on, and I think it's lived on. It is very high quality. And I also think that story is famous, and there's a lot of people who are into all the stories from the war, you know, like Dunkirk, for example, that was yeah. done a few years ago. There, there's a, still a, a lot of people who are fascinated, and rightly so, by all the amazing stories that came out of World War II.
during your film music career, how did you go about choosing your projects? Well, I think to a large extent, my projects chose me. I never had a really huge hit movie. And so, although I did work a lot, I mean, I worked nonstop for about 25 years, which is great, but I never was in the position. I, I turned down some things, but I was never in the position of just picking and choosing everything. I mean, I, first of all, I had to earn a living. You know, I have a family and I'm not independently wealthy by any means. And to me, it was like, this was my job. I mean, I had to earn a living. I couldn't be just like, oh, I don't want to do that. Maybe I did too much. Maybe I did projects I shouldn't have, but I had bills to pay. And so I would pretty much, whatever came along, unless it was terrible or they had no money, I would probably jump in and do it if it was a, at least through a, move, a big studio or a big television network. That was the job. I did very little series TV. Almost all my television movies and miniseries, and other than Cheers, I only did really one other series. And I think I spoke with this about this with Bruce Borson as well. When the phone stopped ringing for film projects, did you walk away from the film music industry, or do you think the film music industry walked away from you? I think both. You know, I think a lot of a composer's career is tied to the directors he or she worked with, and also have they had like a mega hit. And I think that what happened is that a lot of the directors that would hire me stopped working. And I also thought, you know, as I'm getting older, I don't want to just be chasing after every film. I don't need to. I don't need to do, you know, when you said choosing your projects. When I was younger, I needed the money. But at a certain point in my life, I had worked so much and been so successful that I, the financial aspect stopped being an issue. And I wanted to write musicals. I wanted to write my own theatrical musicals. And then I also wanted to write my own albums. And I didn't want to be out there like, you know, like a 30-year-old hustling for every little project. And so I sort of figured, well, if people want me, they'll come to me and that's it. So I think the industry sort of moved on for me because I didn't have big hits. And then I also think that the directors who really hired me a lot stopped making movies. And it's, it was just a progression that happened over about a 10-year period. I don't feel bad about it. I feel like, like I said, I, I was very young when I started. I probably did my first film when I was 24. That's pretty young. Mm. And by the time I was 25 or 26, I did the Bad News Bears in Breaking Training with a 90-piece orchestra at Paramount. So I, my graph was like a, a rocket. And then it's, it's sustained for 25 or 30 years. And, you know, that's, that's long enough. And funny, right now, it's like I feel, well, I don't know that I want to deal with all the politics and deal with all the, the stress. It's a very stressful job. They're constantly changing the movie. There's constant battles going on between the studio and the producer and the director. And, and then just physically writing that much music over a period of a, a month or so, you know, is crazy. You need a whole staff to, to do it. So I have zero regrets. I've have some, I've done some great projects and 
I'm happy with what I'm doing. I just finished my third album of my own music. So that mm. makes me happy. Away from the theatrical releases, you also score some documentaries, like there's one, Secrets of the Titanic. Oh, yeah. 1996. That stood out for me. Did you score documentaries in a different manner to the features? Yes, you do. Documentaries are very different than... Uh, I, I did a bunch of documentaries, and it's quite different. I think you have to lay back a lot because there's going to be voiceover over everything. And usually when you're scoring it, you may hear some of the voiceover, but they haven't finalized it. Because what they'll do is listen to your music, and they'll record all the voiceover, you know, the, the, whoever the narrator is, and then they'll cut down the narration and move it around the music. And, and so you, you always have to be aware that somebody's going to be talking over a lot of your music. So you don't want it to be really soft and then really loud and really overly active. The Titanic, that was a, a wonderful documentary. That was National Geographic. And it's ended up their their biggest selling documentary of all time for their company. And I loved it because I'm sort of a science buff. I always loved science. I think I might have become an archaeologist if I, if I wasn't a composer. I mean, even my first album, Rough Magic, is about Paleolithic cave art. So, But I was really lucky because I was one of the first people to see footage of the actual Titanic, uh, that Ballard found it. He was financed by National Geographic, and he found the Titanic and was able to photograph it with these little robot subs. And this was long before the movie. It was under lock and key. Nobody could see this footage. It was so startling and such a big deal. But I was one of the first people who got to see it. And a camera going through the ballroom with a chandelier askew. I mean, it was it was really something. You know, I, I, I love doing that picture. But it was very sad. And the music is pretty sad.
Talking Soundtracks will return shortly. You're listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. It's Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury. You've rescored some classic silent movies, like, for example, The Kid. And yes. you had a go at Phantom of the Opera as well. How did you go about scoring both of those? So there's a an orchestra called the Dallas Chamber Symphony in Dallas, Texas. They've been commissioning composers to do silent films. I got the call and they said, or would you be interested in uh, doing Charlie Chaplin's The Kid? And I said, yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a lot of fun. And it was originally for about a, I think a 14 piece chamber orchestra, which is what they had. And they performed it in Dallas. And then there's an orchestra out here that I'm friendly with that does concerts all winter, but in the summer does a string of concerts in a big park that overlooks the marina, all the boats. And they put up a big tent and a couple thousand people come. It's free. They're supported by the city. And the conductor heard about this and said, would you like to reorchestrate it? Because it's a symphony. And we'll get out big jumbotrons, big giant video monitors, and put them around the park so everybody can hear it and see it. So I reorchestrated, and it was very successful. And then the next year, he said, let's do another one. And we talked about, you know, I wanted to do Cabinet of Caligari, because that was like, I like that. He said, no, that's too obscure. Let's do Phantom of the Opera. And I said, okay, I've never seen it. I know the famous picture of Lon Chaney with his makeup. It's fantastic. But I've never actually seen that film. And I watched it, and I went, wow, this is a friggin' great film. It's amazing. It holds together. And so I said, sure, I'll do it. I trimmed it a little bit because it was too long for our program, but it was still almost 75 minutes long. And it's a lot of wall-to-wall music. And it was for a full symphony and an organ and a couple of vocalists because on screen, they actually sing. You know, they're singing uh, Faust by Gounod. And again, with these orchestras, it's not like they have a lot of money. It's not like a studio film where you have a crew of orchestrators. So I had to orchestrate it myself and write it and copy it. And it was great. It was a lot of fun. And again, it was very successful. And that was the last time I did it. And it was only about a year before uh, COVID. And now the last summer they were canceled. And this summer they're canceled. They're not doing the concert. But I really enjoyed doing it. It was just something new that I had never done, and I've enjoyed it.
You've also were asked to do some music for the Ringling Brothers and Barn Run Baby Circus. How did that come about? Uh, I had been writing theatrical musicals, and I had an apartment in New York City. This is, what, about 15, 10 years ago or so. I had an agent in New York that was handling my, my musicals. Ringling Brothers had all original music for their shows. They were huge shows, you know, arena shows. They'd be at the, the biggest Madison Square Garden or Staples Center here in Los Angeles, big giant arenas. And the director who came in to do the show, the, the music sounded very sort of New York Broadway, the composer who was doing it. And he said, can we get something that sounds more like film music? And the, the agent who represented this other composer said, well, I do represent this guy that's done a few films. And they sent something and they said, yeah, we'd love him to do it. And I was looking for some work and looking for some different things to do. And I thought, okay, that sounds like an experience. So I did a few of their shows. I wrote all of it at home from videotapes of the acts. And I'd have to write some songs too that were done in the production. But for three weeks, I'd have to go and rehearse. There was an orchestrator. It was orchestrated for live band. It was all live because mm. they can't do it to pre-record because if they're playing to a high wire act, it's going to be a little different every time. So they they have to sort of wait and have you you have to write all that in the music, all that the different possibilities of what might happen to a circus performer. But it was a it's another world. To say it's another world is an understatement. It was interesting to just be sitting in this giant arena, working with the musicians, and then the animals would walk by, and the uh, all the crazy people. Nobody speaks the same language, because some of the performers only speak Russian. Some only speak Spanish. There was always a contingent of people from China. So when the director would talk, there, there'd be three translators you'd have to wait for. Whatever he said had to be translated into three other languages. <laughs> That's a sort of a wacky thing.
As you said before, you've recently released a third of your concept albums, uh, the LAX. How much do you enjoy writing music away from film and television? I love it. I've done three albums. They're each concept. The first one was something that was rattling in my head forever. When I was young, my wife and I, I guess when we were first married, we were in France and I wanted to visit the Paleolithic Caves down in the Dordogne. And I was so moved. I always wanted to write music about it. So finally I was able to, and that's rough magic. And the first, I traveled to many of the caves in France and also in Northern Spain and across the Pyrenees near Bordeaux, there's some caves. I recorded sounds in them. I recorded the reverbs in them. The second album was called Sirens. And it was based on sort of my love of the Odyssey. And I went to Sicily and tried to find some of the islands that were mentioned in the Odyssey. And that was a lot of fun too. Recorded a lot of sounds. And then this last one, I thought, well, I want to do another one, but I don't want to just, you know, I've already done France and Sicily, which are pretty nice just to go to anyway. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I was born in Los Angeles. My father was born in Los Angeles. I really love the city. I've seen it change. I've seen a lot of things that aren't there anymore. I think I'll write about LA, which is why it's called LAX. So it's like the past of LA, but it's also a play on the main airport here, which is LAX. And I just started writing and putting together these pieces, each one in a different musical style. Of all the different thoughts and landmarks and experiences, and I ended up with about 25 pieces. I narrowed it down to 16. I put it aside to write The Phantom of the Opera, which took a long time. That was at least three months. That was a huge job. And then when COVID came, after a few months of being just at home in my studio, I thought, you know, I should finish that album. Now's a good time. Nothing else is going to happen. And I wanted to put live musicians on it. And so I made a list of who I wanted to use, and they were all people who could record at home. And so there's violin and cello and saxophones and guitar and vocals. And we recorded them, you know, just over sending files back and forth. And then I mixed it with my producer and note for note that released Remo Williams, the guys who run that were originally with Verez Saraband and Verez released Sirens. So they were really into releasing this. So I said, great. It's called LAX. It's on Amazon. It's on Spotify. It's on my website. You know, it's it's on uh, Apple Music, all those venues, I'm sure. Anything else you can think of. And I'm really happy with it. It's been getting fantastic reviews. And I I, I love it. It's my favorite album by far. So it's very fulfilling to write music that is just out of my own mind and that I don't have to be subservient to something else. When you're a composer in a film, like I said, you're you're a small part of the film. To yourself, you're a big part of it. But to everybody else on the film, you're just another thing on that film. When you write your own album, that's all it's about. It's just about my music and my vision. And if people buy it, that's great. If they don't, they don't. I love doing it. I love it. I I enjoyed listening to it. It's a very nice album. I really, it's a really good one. Thank you.
are your musical influences when no. you write your music? Anything I play becomes an influence. It doesn't matter what I do. I somehow that music goes into my body. So the first music I ever played was ragtime. You can hear that on LAX on the witch's uh, house, um, you know, or in cheers, the way I did the stride piano and cheers. I, like I said, I love modern classical music. I love Stravinsky. I love Bartok. Concerto for orchestra is one of the great pieces. I love Janacek, Prokofiev. Those are all influences. I love opera, some of it. And I love Penderecki's opera, The Devils. That's been a big influence. But I love the classic romantic, you know, operas, especially Otello, I think, is my favorite opera by Verdi. So I'm influenced by a lot of things. Plus, I grew up during the Beatles period. When Sgt. Peppers came out, I was in college. I locked myself in a practice room and I transcribed the entire album. I mean, I love the Beatles. And I've been enjoying watching this video, uh, this documentary that's, at least in the States, been on with Paul talking. It's been fascinating. But I love a lot of rock and roll. I also grew up listening to Bill Evans, Thelonious Monk, and a lot of other great jazz players. And so they've been an influence. And there's a cut on the LAX album called The Manhole, which is about going to the club where I heard Thelonious. So you can hear a lot of that jazz playing on that, that cut. I'm really influenced by all sorts of music. I don't have just one influence. Now, do you feel generally that your music has been given the respect it deserves in the film industry? I don't know. I try not to get hung up on that. I've sort of done my work as best I can. I think some people really love my music. Some people don't. and. I like what I've written, and, you know, I've been able to basically su support myself well since I was around 25 or 24, only writing music. It's the only thing I've ever done. So I'm doing something right, whether I'm appreciated or not. I, I think I am. I think I'm appreciated more as time goes on in an odd way. Not sure why, but yes. Now, looking back at your career, would you have wished to have worked on more higher-profile projects, or are you happy with what you've done and you've got no well, regrets? I would have liked to, but I'm happy with what I did. You, you know, you, one can't control these things. You can try to control everything, but it's life sort of hands you certain things, and I think you have to enjoy what you have and enjoy your own success. So, yeah, I would have liked to have some higher profile, but you have to remember that Last Starfighter and Remo were very high profile at the time. They just weren't earth-shattering successes. Mm. Uh, Cheers was certainly a huge hit. It's still one of the biggest series. It's never not playing. It's playing all over the world, even to this day, every day. Uh, I did another movie you didn't mention called Stand and Deliver that has been seen probably more than even Star Wars, that's been seen in schools all over the world and has a huge life. That score has been released twice, about uh, Latino kids in uh, East Los Angeles. And that's becoming not only an inspiration, but it's gone beyond an inspiration to become like a comic meme of the good teacher. In fact, I just signed a deal where The Simpsons want to use the theme of that 
Wow. In a, in a Simpson episode where Lisa does something with the school, I don't know what it is, but they're thinking they want to use that theme in The Simpsons. So, you know, so, so my films are out there. Starfighter is out there. People talk about them all the time. So I can't complain. generally your opinion of the state of film music today and what do you think of the future future holds for film and tv music well i think we've gone through a long period that was a reaction to maybe the 80s and 90s where directors have not wanted big themes they haven't wanted music to have the same functionality as it traditionally did. And music almost has become a sound effect. And often, especially in certain action films, it's hard to tell. Are those bases or is that uh, machinery in the uh, basement of that building we're looking at? So I think the, the idea that there's, there are themes has sort of disappeared. Just compare Batman by Danny Elfman and The Dark Knight by Hans, and you'll see what I mean. I mean, one has a theme and one really doesn't. And that's not putting down the composer, 
that's what the directors want. Because I think the composers are perfectly able to write good themes. I just think that's the fashion right now. We may go out of it since the idea that the only really good thing to do are feature films and the television is sort of second rate, that's gone now. We don't even know what a feature film is anymore. I mean, I'm watching all my feature films on Netflix or Amazon. I'm not, I, I think the whole concept of television versus feature film is moot. It's gone. If you see Game of Thrones, that had a strong theme. So you could say, oh, well, maybe themes are coming back. That had a really strong theme. I also have been listening to this new series called White Lotus. I don't know if it's gotten there yet. And it's a Chilean composer. And the music's terrific. It's a lot of fun. It's all electronic or sounds that way. And it's a really unique score. So I like hearing unique music. Uh, the Queen's Gambit, I thought, had a good score. So, so I think you may be moving back to more thematic music. I don't really know. One of the things is that now music doesn't just come to the dubbing stage left, right, center, mix. They have every element. So if a director says, you know, I really like that drums, pull back the rest of the orchestra and just do the percussion. And now how does that sound with the sound effects? Okay, let's do that. They're manipulating the orchestra on the dubbing stage. So a director can push the element that they want, which is usually the percussive element. When you've reached finally the end of your career, why would you like to be remembered by music fans? Well, I think that over the years, as the internet became bigger and bigger, my music became much more accessible. Over the years, more and more of these little film music companies have released CDs and vinyls of my music that I never thought would come out at all. In fact, Warning Sign was released by Inveda, which is uh, down in in the Brighton area, uh, a label. So I think that the fans know my music. People who love film music know my music. I don't think I've occasionally read, oh, uh, we wish he had done more, but I have no regrets whatsoever. I've, I'm very happy with what I've done. I've done music that's been me, which means every score is a little different because that's how I write. And that has good things and bad things about it in terms of business. So I like that the film music community knows my music. They have their favorites. But a lot of times I get these sort of left field favorites like Warning Sign or like Thief, Confrontation from Thief. And, and it's fun. It's fun to think that this music still lives on. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Craig, so fan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on Talking Soundtracks. I do hope you've enjoyed both parts of this edition of Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. And if you do want to know what music was played on the show, please go to the track listings on the show's webpage on the Cinematic Sound website at cinematicsound.net. The theme for Talking Soundtracks was composed by David Cassina. Now to play us out... We're going to play more music from the score, which could be described as Craig Safan's signature work. The cue into the Stargate from his memorable score for the 1984 sci-fi adventure, The Last Starfighter.
My thanks again to Craig Safan for joining us on Talking Soundtracks and until we meet again on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers you hear throughout the program, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And wherever you're listening to us today, please take a moment right now to leave us a rating and a review of the podcast. You can get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt at our Tee Public store. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check us out on the web at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>